Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, as you're um, taking your seats, good morning, first of all. And uh, things are looking a little different up here for a variety of reasons this morning, I know. Um, This is uh, a, a different Sunday in a couple of ways. And so just bear with us as we kind of get to where we need to be and people uh, get comfortable and so forth. But today, um, today's first of all the first Sunday of Advent, and uh, uh, I'm afraid you're going to have to see more of me than usual, so my apologies up front for that. But um, that's partially uh, because Pastor Steve is still uh, on the other side of the ocean he and his family are visiting uh, the Czech Republic. He sent uh, a short email yesterday just to say Thanksgiving in the Czech was wonderful. They had a great time celebrating with the missionaries over there who really enjoyed the encouragement of just having other um, Americans and other believers as well to celebrate with. And so he's looking forward, if not flying back, it's certainly looking forward to getting back. He said the trip has been long enough that they're all excited to come home again. So uh, they will be home later this week, and we look forward to him being back with us next Sunday. In the meantime, as I said, you've got to get used to me. Um, so, as we start our Advent season, we look forward to celebrating the arrival of Jesus. And for those of you who maybe aren't used to that sort of a tradition, Advent is um, a season of four Sundays before Christmas Day, where we just look at different aspects of what it means that Jesus, our Savior, came to earth. Advent just means coming, arrival. And so we're going to look each week at a different uh, sort of facet of what it means that Jesus arrived on earth. And so we start that process today. Um, and, And Pastor Steve has laid out an outline kind of of how to do that through the scriptures. We're going to look at what it means to have uh, Advent seen in the Gospels, of course. We're going to look at what it means to have the Advent uh, revealed by the prophets. We're going to look at what it means to have Advent proclaimed in the Psalms. And today we look at the Advent in the law, which may sound a little bit odd. Where is Jesus the Savior found in the law? But I think you'll see everywhere before we're done this morning. Today's also a little bit different than normal because it's a fifth Sunday, and this year we're going to do something different on our fifth Sundays. They don't come along very often, every couple of months. We're going to try to take more time during the service to focus on the Lord's Supper, and we're going to take time to really make that an integral part of our worship experience. And so rather than having a nice long sermon that you can listen to, we're going to break up that time, and we're going to talk through what it means to look at Jesus the Savior and apply that to the body broken for us. And then we're going to share in the body uh, of Christ as part of the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to take a look at what it means to, to have Jesus uh, come to earth and offer his blood as an ultimate sacrifice. And then we're going to share in the blood of Christ by passing the cup, just as the first Christians did so long ago. And, um, and then at the end, we'll wrap up with one final reflection, a little bit more focused specifically on Advent. And uh, for those of you that are going to help out with serving the Lord's uh, Supper, thank you, and, and I'll let you know when it's a good time to come up and to start to distribute 
the elements. And just um, for those of you that might be visiting, you should know when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we pass the basket of bread around and then we pass uh, the cup around. And you are more than welcome, if you're a believer in Christ, to participate with us. We welcome you and we're grateful that you're here to worship with us. And if you're not a believer in Christ, you can simply pass it on to your neighbor. And that's fine. And you can either hold the bread. There will be songs to sing as they're distributed. You can hold and sing and you can partake of that whenever you feel uh, the moment is right. Or you can partake of it as it's passed, whatever you're most comfortable with. So that's what our fifth Sundays are going to look like. The other thing that we're doing differently is we're not having our typical Sunday school this morning. Uh, There is child care available for uh, those children up through age five that you uh, would like to take back uh, to child care, although you're more than welcome to keep your children here with you. But kids, for those of you that are used to going to Sunday school, you're going to hang out with us for the morning. And so um, I thought it might be appropriate to actually have uh, the, the children participate a little bit. And so what I'm going to try to do is we go through the morning, and as you have to listen to me talk, I'm going to try to ask a question now and then. Now, first of all, let me see who's here under age 13. Okay, come on, you know if you're under, there you go, all right. So I've got a handful up front, I've got a group in the back, I've got some on each side, good. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw out a question and I'll tell you when it's your question and then I'm just going to ask you to shout back an answer. You don't have to raise your hand and be all like, you know, schooly. You can just say the answer if you know it, okay? So first question, we're celebrating Advent season. Advent is the season of coming or arrival. Whose birthday do we celebrate on Christmas? Jesus. All right. Good. Good. There you go. That's your warm-up. Okay? That's the last time Jesus will be the answer. They're going to get harder. Okay? But now you know how this works. I'll ask you a question. You give me the answer. It'll just be one or maybe two words. All right. And then we'll move on. So far, so good. All right. Um, So we know what we're going to do for uh, Advent celebration. We know what we're going to do for communion And we know what we're going to do to worship our great God together uh, this morning. And I would, uh, I just appreciate you all being along for the ride. And uh, as we get started, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing. And then I'm going to open us up in Genesis chapter 3. So if you like to read along as we teach along, uh, I'm going to read the beginning of of Genesis chapter 3. You can get your Bibles open if you'd like. But first, I'm just going to ask that God would be gracious enough to grant us his spirit this morning. And Father, we are grateful that you allow us to gather and to worship. We're grateful that you allow us a place and a time and and to meet in comfort and in ease. And Lord, sometimes it's easy to take all those things for granted. And so we pray that this morning we would not do that, but we pray that you would be here and that your spirit would be pricking our spirits, that your spirit would be actively moving in our hearts so that as we hear the words of Scripture, Lord, would you use them to shape us and to mold us and to make us more like Jesus? And Father, specifically, I just pray that you would help us to understand how this law of yours shows us a need for a Savior. How this law reveals who that Savior is and what he's like. And Father, would you help us to understand our need and how that need was met so that we can rejoice together in the great blessing that our Savior truly is. 
Father, we love you, and we offer up the rest of this morning to you and just pray that the worship would be honoring in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's dive into Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to have time to dissect all of this this morning, but I hope that we get a little bit of a glimpse of Jesus' arrival, Jesus' advent, as we kind of walk through a couple of chunks. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15, just to lay a foundation for us for our morning. Genesis says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This passage, as it unfolds for us what happens that faithful day in the Garden of Eden... It gives us our own history. It tells us what happened so long ago that impacts us to this very day. And in the process of telling us that, it's a foreshadowing. It gives us a glimpse into the future. It's a little easier for us now to look backwards and see exactly what that foreshadowing was. Adam and Eve would not have known entirely what it meant. But thankfully, we have the benefit of all of the history of Scripture. And so we're going to look backwards through the lens of Scripture at the picture of of the garden and of the fall of man and woman. And what we're going to do is we're going to see that thousands of years after these words were written, Jesus arrives on the scene. Jesus arrives on the scene and just in time. Because we're going to see that over the course of that history, 
we had enemies. We had enemies within and without. We had the enemy of Satan who was there in the garden and remains present to this day. We have the enemy of sin even within us that we must escape if we're to be like God intended us to be. And ultimately, we have the enemy of death that takes us, captures us, and prevents us from worshiping our Lord forever. And we're going to see as we look deeper that Jesus came and when he arrived on the scene, he conquered Satan. He conquered sin. And he conquered death. And so the law this morning will show us Jesus, our conquering hero. Now some of you may be wondering, if we're going to talk about the law, what are we doing in Genesis chapter 3? You, you may understand that when we talk about the law, we usually talk about the Mosaic law. That long list of do's and don'ts. That long list of how to live that we find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and elsewhere. We may think perhaps about the law as the Ten Commandments. Okay, that's your first question. Kids, making sure you're still awake. Who, gave, who did God give the Ten Commandments to? <laughs> okay, the majority answer I heard was Moses. That's the right answer. God gave the law to Moses, but that was... A thousand, two thousand years after the Garden of Eden. So what are we doing in Genesis? Well, because I think in Genesis we see a picture of how the law works. We're going to talk more about that as we go through the morning. But we're going to see how the law that was given to Moses really is an expansion of everything that happened there on that fateful day. Back in Genesis chapter 3. And as the law expands on that day, it also expands our understanding of what it means to recognize Jesus, the conquering hero, come to earth to save. So we'll start here and we'll build on our foundation. The familiar passage that we've read talks about Adam and Eve in the garden and they have to deal with our first enemy, a serpent. But we know the serpent is more than just a serpent, right? Kids, who do you know, or if you know, who is the serpent really in the Garden of Eden? Satan, thank you very much. The devil himself takes on this form of a serpent. We don't know how this works exactly, but we do know that Satan and his demons are sometimes able to, To get inside an animal or even a person and take charge of them. And that's exactly what happens here. The Apostle Peter would describe Satan as a devil, a roaring lion, seeking whom he he may devour. We don't know what he looked like as a serpent. My suspicion is not like a lion. Beautiful, peaceful, wily. It doesn't matter what form he takes. Satan himself is more crafty and more dangerous and more powerful than any of us could be on our own. That's something we need to understand. Sometimes when we talk about the devil, we think of him in sort of cartoony terms. 
We think of him as something out there that we don't see and that we don't experience. And so what power could he really have? Scripture is very clear. We have an adversary in the spiritual world. That adversary is deadly. Some of us might even be tempted to think, you know, if I'd been in the garden that day, I'd have been smart enough. I mean, after all, God said, don't touch the fruit. And here the the silly serpent says, well, God didn't say that. Look how beautiful this fruit is. I would have seen right through that. No. Don't fall prey to such a temptation. Well, I'll I'll put it this way. Anyone here who's never given in to temptation, raise your hand. We all fall prey to temptation. Now, that doesn't mean that the devil tempts us day in and day out. We tempt ourselves. Scripture says that we sin when we give in to our own flesh. But certainly, the devil and his demonic forces play a role. Once we understand how dangerous Satan really is, once we understand how deadly he truly can be, then we can understand how powerful is the conquering hero who defeats him. Take a look at verse 15 in our, in our chapter here. As the Lord talks to the serpent, and as he curses him, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is God's declaration of the consequences of Adam and Eve's disobedience. In a little bit, we'll look at the consequences specifically to Adam and Eve. But before we do that, this verse, verse 15, tells us there's a consequence to Satan himself. And the consequence will come in the form of a head wound. Some translators say that the the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent rather than bruise. That's a fitting translation. The point is, Satan may wound man. There may be a, a heel wound. There may be a pricking, an injury, a lameness that's to come. But the offspring, the seed of the woman, will destroy Satan with a wound that is fatal, a death blow. But that doesn't happen in Genesis 3. The serpent goes on crawling on his belly, but he's alive. The wound will be fatal, but God does not crush Satan on the spot. But then Jesus arrives. Fast forward several thousand years. Jesus comes. He's born in a lowly stable. He lives 33 or so years. He ministers, he teaches, he heals, he travels, and then he dies. Kids, where does Jesus die? On the cross. He's in heaven now, but he dies here on planet earth. On the cross. Bloody, beaten, and bruised. You ever wonder... What did Satan think of Jesus' death? I know I ask weird questions sometimes. (laughs) But I've often thought there was a plan from the beginning. Do we know? Do we know? Did Satan 
want Jesus to go to the cross or was Satan afraid of the cross? Scripture tells us the answer to that question. And it does so in a very appropriate place. Because we're going to turn our attention in a minute to the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, the communion service. And right there, as Jesus institutes that for the first time, we find the answer. Did Satan actually have a role in the death of Jesus? Luke chapter 22 describes, in Luke's words, the scene that unfolds when Jesus opens this new ceremony for us. He takes the old Passover ceremony and he gives it new meaning. And as Luke 22 opens, it gives us these words. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, Jesus, to death. For they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to death. Satan entered into Judas Iscariot. The same devil who was in the garden leading Adam and Eve to taste certain death was also in Jerusalem scheming to see our Savior hung on a tree. And what is Jesus' response? Certainly Jesus, the conquering hero, is one who could say no to Satan. Praise God, he did not. Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is not tricked into going to the cross. He's not overpowered in temptation, as Adam and Eve were. He does not fall victim to some carefully devised plot of the devil. Jesus goes willingly. He offers himself. He knows there is victory, but only through the cross. He knows he will crush the head of the, of the serpent, Satan, but only by allowing his own body to be crushed by those who would take life from him. And so by willingly going to the cross in our place, Jesus defeats Satan once and for all. Because Satan no longer has power and authority beyond what Jesus will allow. I want us to think about that for a few moments. And actually, why don't our servers come forward? And as they do, we're going to in a minute we're going to distribute the bread. If those, will, those who are going to assist us. And just think with me for a minute. Whatever the devil might do to us here, now, on this side of the cross, whatever schemes he may employ, we have a confidence knowing Jesus was victorious, even in death. Satan holds no power over him. Jesus willingly offered his body to death for that purpose. And so, as the conquering hero... Jesus is victorious over Satan, the devil, and he submits his own body willingly offered for us 
willingly given to redeem a people cursed since Genesis chapter 3. Father, thank you. Thank you that Jesus comes and he is the conquering hero who defeats the serpent. And he is the one who offers his body for us. And Lord, we know we are unworthy, but we pray that you would cause us to rejoice in being made worthy by the body that was crushed for us. In the name of that precious Savior, Jesus. Amen. So, Jesus conquers Satan. We celebrate. But there's more to the story. As we continue to think about Jesus' celebration of Advent, look at another aspect of what Adam and Eve actually did in the garden. And let's think about that in terms of how it looks for us now on this side of the cross. If you look back in Genesis 3, uh, verses 9 and 10 this time, we see these words. But the Lord God called to the man, Adam, and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. All right, kids, I've got a little word in mind. It's a short little word. And it's a fancy little word that the Bible uses when it talks about us disobeying. What does God call it when we disobey? Ooh, good. Sin. It's a fancy word that simply means we don't do what God requires of us. And we see it on display right here in the garden. We see it on display very graphically and in a, wonderfully, in a, in a wonderful picture because it, it paints for us a portrait of what sin really does. It could be as simple as, I know what I was supposed to do and I didn't do it and so, okay, I'm sorry. But it's more than that. Look at Adam and Eve as they're in the garden and as they take the fruit, they realize instantly We're exposed. They know they are naked before God. They try desperately to hide from His presence because they suddenly know they cannot stand before a just and holy God, even in the cool air of a garden. Adam says, God, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid a painfully accurate picture of what it means to ignore the words of our Lord. We distance ourselves. We try to hide, thinking that if we can just cover ourselves enough, perhaps God won't notice. Perhaps he'll pass by and be distracted by something else in the garden. And then, oh, I don't know, maybe it'll just go away. But it doesn't go away. Sin lingers. It festers. It grows. I love the way God responds. Adam says, I was naked and I was hid. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Caught red-handed and God wastes no time in getting to the heart of the matter. My child... What's this chocolate all over your face? 
Have you been into the brownies that I told you to save until after supper? I see here in your bank account, you're down to, oh, negative 10. Did you buy that thing that you knew you shouldn't have bought? How is it that God goes from that open outward expression, I was naked and so I hid, right to the heart of, did you eat that fruit that I told you not to eat? Because that's how sin works. Sin exposes us, and our holy God sees us for who we are. And if we allow him, he'll show us so we can see ourselves for who we really are. Now, I told you earlier that this picture in the garden gives us a foundation for the law that's yet to come. Think about this. Think about what this looked like. Here, Adam and Eve are placed in this beautiful garden. The trees and the plants and everything around them is wonderful, magnificent. God says as he creates every bit of it, it is good. He bestows blessing upon blessing upon blessing on them. And then he puts a boundary around it. And he says, there is a limit. The limit is that tree over there. Just stay away from that tree. Why? Because if you eat of it, you will die. And so for their own protection, God puts a limit to the blessings that he gives them and says, I will give you more than you need, more than you can ever hope for. But keep in mind, don't go there. You'll die. If you, if you look forward to that time when Moses received the law, well, the first time he gets it, they're coming out of Egypt. They're being rescued from hundreds of years of bondage, slaves made free. And God says, I'm going to bestow on you blessing upon blessing upon blessing. But there's some limits. There's some boundaries. And I'm going to give you those boundaries for your own protection. Just listen and obey. And we know how that goes. Not well. And so... Years later, as they're ready to enter the promised land, finally, God does it again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you houses and lands and farms and stuff that you didn't earn and you don't deserve, but it's going to be blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And, and so remember, I've given you some limits. Here's the boundaries. Remember? Just obey. And we know how that goes. And so... If you look into the law, and I'll spare you reading, if you look into the law, it gives us an answer. In fact, the first seven chapters of Leviticus give us seven chapters of answers, and it's all about sacrifice. It's all about the fact that God understands his children don't always obey, and so he gave them a sacrifice, a system of sacrifice, and he said, When you disobey, not if, but when, here is how you're to purge yourselves. Here is how you're to cleanse yourselves. And he gives them a sacrifice. He goes through an entire system of how the priests are to sacrifice, the people are to sacrifice. It's wonderful to know that even in our disobedience, God has made provision. And if you were to look in... in, 
Leviticus, especially in chapter 16, you'd see that, first of all, the shedding of blood is necessary for an effectual sacrifice according to God's law. But you would also see how to go about selecting the right animal to be sacrificed because God wanted an animal sacrifice that would allow blood to be spilled, that would allow us to be cleansed. And so in the law, God says, you shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And so God says, I want your firstborn animals, and I want your perfect animals, at least as near to perfect as they can be. No blemish, no spot, no malformity, no injury, nothing that would make this an imperfect animal. I only want the best offered as a sacrifice. And yet, year after year after year after year, the sacrifices go on, and the people know that's not going to be enough because I'm going to sin more, and so I'm going to have to sacrifice more. And so next year, the priest is going to return and atone again, and it's just going to go on and on. And then Jesus arrives. The advent, the coming of Jesus is a turning point. Because Hebrews tells us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, the law required the blood of animals, but that was only a temporary fix. The sins of the people were never fully atoned. But Jesus comes, and we already talked about how he died. He went to the cross willingly, voluntarily, and his blood was spilled. And here's what's amazing about the law. If you read the law, you see Jesus. All those things that you and I can't do because we're just not good enough, he did. Scripture tells us he fulfilled every aspect of the law. And so, when the law says, we need a perfect sacrifice, without blemish, without wrinkle, without deformity, without imperfection, we see Jesus. We see the perfect Lamb of God, who said, I'll go to the cross, I'll take the punishment for your sins, I will take the wrath of God upon, upon myself. Had Jesus not come... If he had not lived a perfect life, that sacrifice would be just as weak and impotent as the blood of bulls and goats to take away our sin. Guys, come on back up. We're going to distribute the cup. And as we do that, here's something to consider. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 says, Every priest stands daily at his service. This is talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those are being sanctified. Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for all of sin. Long ago, Adam and Eve cast the human race into darkness by their act of disobedience. But since that time, 
Each of us has repeated the disobedience over and over again. What an amazing God we serve that would be so patient to wait so long because the single effective sacrifice of Christ would be sufficient. So as we're drawn to the element of the cup and as we pass it, remember, Jesus himself taught us to do this because this cup represents the new covenant in his blood. His blood shed for you. His blood shed for me. And Jesus comes as the conqueror, not just of the devil, but of sin itself. To put sin to death. The perfect Lamb of God. The ultimate sacrifice for you. If you have not um, partaken of the elements, I would encourage you to do that. And uh, let's just pray and thank God. And Lord, we do thank you because you have given Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice, for his conquering of sin. We thank you that that sacrifice was powerful enough to take away the sins of the multitudes. And Father, we thank you that we can celebrate Jesus come to earth to save sinners like us. Amen. Okay, you're doing well. You're hanging in there. We've talked about how Jesus conquered Satan, the devil himself. We've talked about how Jesus conquered sin and praise God for that. But we have another enemy that we face as mere mortals. And we need to look at how Jesus conquered death. And this actually is... A good transition for us, because one of the things that we do on each of the four Sundays of Advent is we light an Advent candle, part of our little Advent wreath up here. And so I think it's fitting to do that now because the candle that we're going to light fits with the message of Jesus conquering death. The first candle of Advent. Kids, do any of you know, remember what the first Advent candle is? The candle of... I got it said real quietly up here. Hope. This is the candle of hope. We're going to go on and, and look at the other candles in the weeks ahead. But we light the candle of hope. Right? Remember that. Candle of hope. There will be a test later. We light the candle of hope as a way to celebrate what it means that Jesus came and gave hope to all mankind. And it's fitting that we celebrate with the Lord's Supper and also a feast. It's fitting that we celebrate by fellowship together and enjoying the Lord's bounty. Why so? Well, in order to see that, turn back to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to just keep backing up. We saw in verse 15 how we had the enemy of Satan. We saw... Uh, In verses 9 and 10, how we had the enemy of sin. And we see in verse 3, our final enemy of the morning. The serpent questions Eve and says, Did God tell you that you should not eat from any of the trees? And Eve says, in verse 3, God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest... You die. There is a command here from God. 
don't eat from that tree. But notice there's a consequence. Lest you die. If you do eat from it, surely you will die. It doesn't get much clearer, but sadly, our um, beloved couple doesn't quite get the message, or at least they forget the message because ultimately they both disobey. They both eat the fruit. And now what's the result? Well, if we'd kept on reading through the rest of Genesis chapter 3, we'd see in verse 19, after God curses the serpent and after God curses the land and after God says the woman will now bear the pain as the consequence of her action, the ultimate consequence comes when God says to Adam, for you are from dust and to dust you shall return. God says to Adam, there was a consequence for your action and now you must face it. You will die and go back to the ground from which I made you. That's rather bleak. But we've lit our candle. And this is the candle of hope. So where's the hope? Sadly, it gets worse before it gets better. You see, Adam and Eve were not just our genetic ancestors. They were our spiritual ancestors. And so we have inherited some things from them. We've inherited the genetic code that makes us look like we look, for better or worse. We've also inherited this proclivity to sin, this Willingness to quickly jump into temptation. This ability to say, ooh, that looks really good. I think I'll have a bite. Which means we've also inherited the consequence of that sin. For all of us must taste death. In fact, if you consider the heroes of the Bible, they all share something in common. Noah, who was declared righteous by God and He was used to save the entire human race from destruction. He's not here today. Um, Abraham, the father of God's chosen nation, who was to be the recipient of the promise of God, is not with us anymore. He died. Moses, the receiver of the law, the leader of the people out of exile, before the children entered the promised land, he died. You could go on and on all morning. Daniel, the great and wise ruler, all of the prophets, Samuel and so forth. Even Mary and Joseph, the chosen couple who would be the earthly parents of our Savior Jesus. Ultimately, they die. They all return to dust just as you and I must. Why? Well, because as we've heard Pastor Steve say so often, the wages of sin is not good works. The wages of sin is death. We sin. We must die. And then Jesus arrives. And then we have our hope. You see... Jesus came as a baby. We know that. He lived and, and 
walked this earth. He taught. We have much of what he said written down for us. He healed countless people. He did so many wonderful things. And as we said at the beginning of our morning, he died. And praise God, that death is sufficient to conquer sin for us. But praise God, it does not end there. Because Scripture tells us, if Jesus were still in the grave, we should be pitied above all men. For we would be following a dead God. We'd be no different than those who carve their gods out of wood and stone. He died a criminal's death at the hands of some of the cruelest executioners history has ever known. But praise God, that was not the end. After lying in the tomb for three days, Jesus did something that no one before or since has done. He came out. He who was dead came back to life. Death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him captive. That brings us hope. That is where our hope is found. Why? Well, Romans says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. You you can't die once you've beaten death. There's nothing left. Life is his and life eternally. There was a time when the devil helped to orchestrate his death. There was a time when that death was necessary to be the ultimate sacrifice. But thanks be to God, there is now a time when we can serve a risen, living Savior. And what's more, and here's where it gets really exciting, Paul tells us, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. See, we have hope, we have life because Jesus had life. This is the candle of hope. What does it mean that Jesus came to earth? It doesn't mean that he taught us how to live. Sure, he did, but that's not ultimately why we rejoice. It doesn't mean that he came to give us new ceremonies and new ways of looking at old ceremonies. He did, that's true, but that wouldn't be enough. That wouldn't give us hope. That would just be the same thing over again. Jesus came to die, to be raised, and to live, and to live forever. And so our hope is rooted in the conqueror who defeated death once for all time. Now in the process, he defeated death and sin and Satan all at once, the ultimate conqueror. We know hope because we serve a king who conquered every enemy there was to mankind. The theme for our Advent series this year Thine Advent here is taken from an old song, a Christmas song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I want you to listen closely to the words of the verse where that comes. We'll sing it, but sometimes it's easy to let the words come 
out of our mouths without rattling around in our brains. Listen to this hope. O come, thou dayspring. That's Jesus. Come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Jesus chases away the gloom and despair of the world. This is our hope. This is the Jesus we celebrate. The application of all of this is very simple. We celebrate a baby Jesus in the manger at Advent, but that is not all we celebrate. We celebrate Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We celebrate Jesus, the only one who fulfilled the law of God perfectly, but allowed himself to be beaten, bruised, and to die, to defeat Satan, sin, and death. Let that be your hope, and let that be your celebration for Advent season. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.